Hi, this is Kevin Quinley of Quinley Risk Associates, and welcome to this week's episode of the Claims Coach Podcast. You know, typically on this podcast, uh, I try to cover the world of claims and insurance from A to Z. Today, though, I'm going to try to cover it from Z to A, and I'll explain in a minute why when I join in conversation with a special guest, Robert Bob Underdown of the Phoenix, Arizona area. Um, Bob and I are uh, mutual members of a professional uh, group called uh, American Association of Insurance Management Consultants. I know that's a mouthful. We refer to it as AIMCO, but it sounds like we're in car transmissions, which we're not. But uh, I think I've known Bob for 15 or 20 years, intersecting back in my days in the corporate world uh, when, we would, when we would occasionally talk about insurance topics. And then about nine years ago, I don't know if Bob remembers this, but about nine years ago, I was in between corporate jobs, but thinking about someday going out on my own as an insurance uh, consultant and expert witness. And Bob, you were extremely giving and generous of your time and advice and counsel in 2008 when I was mulling over that, uh, that change, and I've never forgotten that, so I, I appreciate that. I thank you for that. So Bob, uh, let, me, uh, let me thank you for joining the Claims Coach Podcast, and let's start at, not at the beginning, but sort of, uh, not at the end either, but currently. What is your current role uh, in the insurance industry? What is it, how would you describe what you do? Uh, well, uh, what, uh, what I do as an insurance expert witness, uh, Kevin, is I provide uh, a, a service to attorneys who are handling uh, litigation involving insurance matters. Um, I work for either the plaintiff's side or the defense side, uh, depending on the case. Um, I try to keep a balance uh, uh, Equal of equal representation for either side, plaintiff or defense. Um, I do a lot of uh, work in the area of uh, claims, uh, bad faith claims handling issues. That is a widespread area of concern. Uh, I find that a lot of um, plaintiff's lawyers throw in bad faith uh, claims kind of as a uh, matter of course. Uh, and so there's always uh, that issue involved in a claims handling matter. Okay. Do you also do uh, what per- uh, what percentage roughly of your engagements would you say are claims related? You do some agent and broker, uh, errors and omissions, standard of care. Is that is also true? That is correct. I do a I do a fair a percentage of uh, insurance agent and broker standard of care cases, uh, both for uh, plaintiff and defense. Uh, I would say I probably do about uh, 20% of my uh, work in the agent broker area, and probably 30% in the bad faith claims area. Okay. And where would the where would the other 50% lie? Would you say? Just um, sort of a general. Um, a grouping of all kinds of different cases. I, I do some coverage opinions. Uh, I've actually done uh, a couple of cases where there were um, risk management standards, uh, also uh, litigation management standards. Um, and the, the litigation management standards cases, I've done a few of those. They tend to be kind of on the periphery of um, attorney bad uh, attorney 
E&O cases. So the interaction of the uh, insurance company representative dealing with the uh, defense attorneys in defending insurance cases. So how long have you done this? I mean, usually most of the experts I know, there's a demarcation. At one point, they were in a corporate environment, and then they became consultants. Where did that, where did that break occur for you, and, and how long have you been at this? Well, I have been uh, an insurance expert witness for approximately 20 years. <clears throat> okay. And, and the way I got into it was I had left the corporate world and I was doing structured settlements uh, and um, really enjoying that. But um, I got a call from a former insurance broker that I had used in the corporate world. And um, he had received a call from a law firm that, uh, that he had used uh, for defending insurance cases. And they wanted him to provide expert witness testimony in the case they were handling. Um, he said that... Uh, he was too busy. He didn't want to do it. it. It sounded like too much work. And I said, well, I would be happy to do it because I think that's very interesting. And uh, so that's how I got into it. And uh, I've, I really I enjoy it. I enjoy uh, every day uh, coming to work and uh, working on a wide variety of cases. And no two cases are exactly the same. And it, uh, it always keep, keeps you on your toes, keeps you thinking. So here's where the A to Z and Z to A comes in. How, I've looked at your, your resume. How did a guy who went to college and majored in zoology end up working in the insurance business? <laughs> well, that, zoology that's, to insurance archaeology, which I'll get to later. But that, there's that, the Z to A. Yeah, that's a, that's a good question, heading back from the Z. <laughs> I, I just, you know, in, uh, in, in school, I enjoyed... Uh, my science courses, and was was looking towards a a career in the sciences. Uh, how, however, when I got out of college, the the first job that uh, that was available was claims adjuster, and it it paid well, uh, and it had a company car, and that was a real that was a real bonus for me. I at the time, and so I took a job as a claims adjuster with the um, the old uh, nationwide firm of General Adjustment Bureau, uh, which was a, um, a a large firm that was at one time actually owned by insurance companies, and they they did become independent over the years. But I, I always thought that uh, someone like General Adjustment Bureau was a was an extremely good. Um, training ground for the insurance industry, no matter what kind of area you you got into, uh, it certainly provided a a wide variety of challenges and educational opportunities uh, for a young person right out of right out of college. So, did you have a different kind of career in mind originally with a zoology degree? Yes, I, I really had a, a in mind you know a career in the sciences. I I at one point sort of saw myself being in a lab the rest of my life, right. and I have to say being a claims adjuster was much more interesting than being stuck in a lab. <laughs> a laboratory of a different kind, I guess, a laboratory of human behavior where a Absolutely. lot of the subjects are under stress as well. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. That's true. 
So and, um, was there a point in your claims career at the beginning or toward the middle where it dawned on you that this was not just a job, but it was going to be a career, where you liked it enough so that this was going to be a career? Yes, you know, uh, I uh, I worked uh, in the field for a couple of years as a as a sort of a generalist property and casualty claims adjuster for General Adjustment Bureau, and then I was promoted to branch manager uh, in El Centro, California, and uh, that was a very interesting time for me. Uh, being in El Centro, uh, I was actually. Uh, New, fairly new in the business, but totally on my own. The nearest manager to El Centro was Phoenix, Arizona, and uh, he didn't get over to El uh, Centro very often. So it was kind of uh, a sink or swim sort of situation, and uh, I thoroughly enjoyed it. And then at um, <clears throat> at some point, I think as sometimes people do, I got a little bit weary of the corporate uh, grind and yep. uh, went off on my own and really uh, never regretted that. Uh, the, the, the idea of being your own boss and being an, an expert witness is just, it's very appealing to me. Uh, and when I look around the, the table at meetings like the AIMCO, American Association of Insurance Management Consultants, or FIWA, Forensic Expert Witness Association. Um, these are two groups that I belong to, and and I must say the the members of these groups are, are among the most interesting people you'll ever meet. They're all seasoned uh, veterans in their fields. They all have a lot of opinions, and they're not uh, uh, embarrassed to uh, to state their opinions, particularly since they get paid so well for it. Under under down on understatement. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> to me, uh, I was the president of the uh, Arizona chapter for FIWA, right. and being president of that group is like herding cats. They're they're quite a bunch of interesting characters. <laughs> I got to ask you this: When you made that transition, Bob, from as as I did uh, at one point from corporate employee to self-employed consultant slash expert expert witness. Was that a hard or scary decision for you? Because I'll tell you, it was for me. I'm, in hindsight, I, I'm glad I made it, and I wish I'd done it sooner. But was that a, an agonizing or tough decision for you? You know, it really wasn't that tough for me. I'd been thinking about it for a while. Okay. And, and I, I think what really made it easier for me was when I looked around the corporate world at all the people that I met in the corporate world, and kind of shook my head sometimes and said, why are they here? And why are they, uh, you know, so far above me in the hierarchy and getting paid so much? Um, anyway, that's, that was kind of something that forms my, my decision pattern. And in fact, kind of an aside on that, uh, I have brought in um, a um, sort of an understudy for my practice. And it's, it's a very interesting uh, to to watch him in the process of, of the transition. Uh, he is uh, a 20-year veteran of the insurance industry, uh, being a claims adjuster, claims supervisor, claims manager. And in this case, uh, uh, my associate, uh, Eric Peterson, is also uh, uh, an attorney. So Eric is having a great time 
making the transition <coughs> excuse me making the transition into self-employed uh, expert consultant terrific so, so will that be sort of a succession plan at at some point in time when you decide to hand the baton off absolutely that's okay. that's the plan okay. we're we're working on a lot of marketing right now in fact he and i uh, shared a booth at the uh, Defense Research Institute annual meeting in New Orleans week before last. Uh, we had a great time. We've met a lot of uh, uh, attorneys there, a lot of whom I had worked for in the past, and uh, they're already calling uh, to, to to assign cases to Eric. So it was a it was a, a worthwhile trip. That's great. So I know a lot of expert wit. I know a lot of insurance experts, they tend to be either expert witnesses or consultants. But rarely does does one expert do both. I mean, they're, they're consultants who do not have the appetite for the rough and tumble of expert witnessing and all of the, all of the stress and the white knuckles that go with it. And I know experts who who relish that stuff, but who do not relish spending time on site with clients uh, and getting in the crossfire of corporate politics or being partially or wholly in charge of implementation of the ideas. Do you do both, though, expert witnessing and consulting? Well, I have done both, and I would like to do more consulting uh, because I think that it it's it's good to do that uh, just to kind of keep your hand in the technical aspect of of the practice however uh, it's interesting because as a general rule when an attorney calls uh, an expert witness they they really need them they've they've got a deadline um, the other side has has called an expert, so they've got to produce an expert. Or there there are some constraints that make it some some of some urgency that the attorney find promptly an appropriate expert to uh, assist them on on the specific case. On the other hand, when you're looking at pure consulting assignments. Typically, there isn't that sort of urgency. It isn't perhaps as important to the client that A, something be done or be done right away. Uh, and as a, as a general rule, uh, if you look at the, the fee structure for expert witness work as opposed to pure consulting work, ordinarily, you, I find that that individuals or corporations are not uh, prepared to pay the same hourly rate for a consultant as a law firm would for an expert witness. Good point. So there is a financial component to it, frankly. So would it be fair to say that to some extent expert witnessing involves more time-imposed stress, but is paid at a slightly higher rate, hourly rate? Correct. That is correct. Okay. Yeah, I know that it is a source of periodic frustration for me, the, the, t the time urgency. 
uh, I don't know about you, but where, where you get you get the calls at the proverbial eleventh hour to you know analyze a large mass of material, review it, analyze it, develop opinions, develop a report, um, and uh, that's a challenge, uh, and and it's frustrating at times. Uh, it can be. It certainly can be. Especially when you find that when you look and see and you find out that the opposing expert, you know, had 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 it for four months before <laughs> they before they uh, formulated their report and opinion, and you've got two weeks. Um, but uh, I'm just ventilating there. So, well, but uh, here's here's an here's an, an example of that. Uh, it is now 1:16 p.m. local time. I got a call about 25 minutes ago from a local attorney that says I need you to come to the office today and prepare an affidavit. <laughs> so, so well, I said I'll be there at three o'clock. Have the file out so I can look at it. Okay. So, well, that that is an extreme example, the life of an expert witness. So <laughs> let's delve a little bit about the A part, the archaeology, particularly insurance archaeology. When and how and why did you start working on insurance archaeology as, I guess I'd call it a subspecialty? Well, it, it, it really it, it is. Our insurance archaeology is, a, is a, a specialty in the insurance area. And, and it, insurance archaeology is really my tagline. Right. It's not exactly what I do. So... The, there, there are people that that are specifically insurance archaeologists who actually dig up policies for clients. The the, the classic case is if you have uh, a, a liability policy, and um, you're. I think the classic example is a. Um, I remember um, there was a city that was putting in new sidewalks, they were digging up the old sidewalks and found underground fuel storage tanks from 30 years before. So what they're going to do, somebody needs to go back and unearth any liability policies that pertain to that particular location as far back as they can to see if there's any potential for insurance coverage for the remediation uh, the solar remediation uh, in that area. That's a true insurance archaeology job. My tagline is, I am the insurance archaeologist. I dig for buried treasure in your client's insurance policies. Ah, okay. okay. <laughs> so it is archaeology, but of a different nature. So we comb through the the policies to find the appropriate uh, exclusions or exceptions to the exclusions. Well, that's interesting. So my first reaction when I heard about insurance archaeology is, oh, you, your typical client would be a policyholder. But do I understand that sometimes it's not, that it's the carrier? So Yes, that's, that's correct. That is correct. Okay, interesting. So how did, how did this develop, uh, this, this niche or subspecialty? Was it um, happenstance? Did you plan on you know, marketing or monetizing your skill in insurance coverage using this angle? How did that evolve? Yeah, it was really to, to monetize the uh, insurance coverage uh, experience that I've had over the years. Okay. 
and 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 it it's a it's a catchy tagline. People will remember that. Yes, yes. So it sounds like then it's an archaeologist, not in the sense that you're going back to dig out ancient policies, and by ancient I mean you know ten, twenty, thirty years ago, but but current or more recent policies, but doing a deep dive into those policies, into the weeds, to either That's find coverage or find a grounds for uh, contesting coverage? That is correct. That is, that is absolutely correct. In fact, they're really, I, I mean, when you think about uh, uh, disciplines, it's a pretty arcane discipline, that of insurance policy construction. Yes, there are not a lot of people into that sort of discipline. In fact, I happen to be on the Insurance Policy Writing Committee for the Claims and Litigation Management Society, which is another interesting group of people. See, you can imagine people that, that study how to write, how to draft insurance policies. Right, right. You may have touched on this, Bob, but does your consulting and expert witness practice consists mostly of plaintiff side or insurer side cases or is it pretty evenly split well i try to keep it evenly divided um my my and my thought is that uh i i know people that work for one side or the other i, I i've got a, a friend who's a an attorney and he only works on plaintiff cases and you know, uh, exhibits a clear and complete disdain for insurance companies. So there's there's never a question about what side he, he's going to be on. And to me, that's that's a it's it's difficult because that can can show bias on the part of the expert. And I I think that that makes it a little more difficult um, to be an expert. Yeah, I have to agree with you there. Um, Although sometimes I say, you know, you can't choose your parents and you can't choose who, who opts to call you up with an engagement. I mean, I've, that's true. For, fortunately, over the years, it may vary from year to year, but perhaps somewhat like you, my caseload is roughly 50% on the plaintiff's side, 50% on the carrier's side. But I don't ever recall declining an assignment because I said, this is going to put my percentage balance out of whack. I, I will decline assignments because it's outside of my swim lane of expertise or because the deadline is too ridiculous or I know somebody who's a better fit for the case. Yeah, and that, that's true. And, and, you know, and sometimes you just have to say, you know, this is a case that, that I would rather be on the other side. Yes, that's a good point. That's a good point. And I think that's the, the plus side of, do, of having a, what I call a split composition of caseload. It, by split, I mean, you know, roughly half on defendant's side, half on the plaintiff's side. Is it makes it harder for the opposing attorney to try to paint you as a whore for either the insurance industry or the bad faith bar. But, it all, but the downside is it can make it perilous in terms of impeachment purposes that you, you step very carefully to make sure that the position that you take on one case doesn't contradict a position that you have taken in comparable facts on an opposing side case, if that makes any sense. Yeah, that's a good point. That's a very good point. 
but um, that, that's a different issue. That's that the point there is to, to exercise care. But like you, I uh, I know I know experts who will, you know, they're always going to be on the plaintiff side, always going to be on the defense side. Um, you know, my my answer to that is I am not pro insurance company or anti insurance company. I am pro sound claim practices. And if the yeah, insurance correct. company embraced sound claim practices, then it has nothing to be worried about. If it didn't embrace or use sound claim practices, then I, Kevin Quinley, am not their problem. Um, and so that's sort of my perspective on this, uh, on the issue of whether you're, you know, have to be pro carrier or pro plaintiff. Um, whatever, but like you, I, I do work both sides, and I'm unapologetic uh, about that. But you're right; there are cases where, where you say I'd, I'd rather be on the other side. Um, but uh, uh, you, you know, they got one side got to you first. So, when you launched your own business, when you stepped out of the corporate womb, and it sounds like you, you you've never looked back. And I'll, I've never looked back, but I found it a somewhat frightening, <laughs> a frightening experience that turned out pretty well. It turned out very well. But when you look back on when you launched your own, whether you call it consulting or expert witness business, what do you know now that you wish you'd known earlier, 20 years or so ago, when you launched it? Well, you know, one of the things that I learned uh, that – I, I I was talking with a counselor of mine. I, I don't recall exactly when. It was a few years into the process. And my counselor said, you need to hire an assistant. And I said, I can't afford to hire an assistant. And the counselor said, you can't afford not to hire an assistant. And, uh, and then I read a book, and basically the book said, that you shouldn't do anything that you can pay someone to do at a lesser rate than your hourly rate. So the point is that uh, if you have a lawn service and they charge X dollars per hour, and that X dollars per hour is less than what you charge per hour, you better be in your office billing at that rate and pay them to do the lawn work. So did that prompt you to hire um, ad, any admin staff? Oh, absolutely. Yes. Okay. Okay. I've been very fortunate in that, in that regard. And are, is that like a, a virtual assistant? Is it an, uh, an independent contractor? Is it an employee? How do you handle that? Well, uh, I have uh, um, an independent contractor who comes into the office uh, three days a week and also works um, – Remote at times. Okay. And it's been very, very helpful to me. So you pay them by the hour? Yes, that's idea. correct. Okay. Interesting. All right. She's a much better typist than I am <laughs> and a much better grammarian than I am. So, so what types very helpful. Of, what types of admin do you have this person do? Do they do billing, uh, follow-up with uh, collections? Uh, what Give me some examples. Give us some examples of uh, well, what, how it frees you up. Yes. One of the things is that, that for the uh, opinions, um, 
my assistant prepares a, a template. We have a federal court template and a state court template. And she prepares a, a template for each new case. Uh, I do a draft of the, of the text, and she uh, proofs it, um, and I review it, and um, we may add or subtract to it. And then, uh, but but she's very active and in, actively involved in the in the creation of the opinions uh, and uh, the invoicing and billing, filing, um, bank statement reconciliation. Uh, basically, um, basically, she does my taxes. Okay. With the way she keeps keeps track of the expenses. So it's a, it it covers a lot of ground and saves me a lot of time. So you can focus solely on the areas of your strengths the, the, that, where you add value. Exactly. That, that is sense. precisely it. I mean, I the the really the last thing I want to be doing is to be uh, filing invoices that come in or something like that. That's uh, that, and even if I am not actively working on a case that I'm billing, more likely than not, I'll be working to get my next case. So while I may look at a given block of time, like this morning or this afternoon, and say, well, there are X number of hours that I could be billing there. If I'm not billing, I'm working on things to create uh, more cases that I can bill. So does this person also assist you in marketing? Yes. Oh, yes. Yes. For example, um, one of the things we have a we have a rather lengthy um, old-fashioned Christmas card list. So about uh, 600 of my closest attorney friends will get a Christmas card from me this year. Okay. And and one of the goals is to reach out to my contact group somewhere between three or four times a year. For, for example, when, when we were preparing to go to the DRI conference in New Orleans week before last, I sent a couple of e-blasts out to my LinkedIn uh, contacts. And I have about 4,500 contacts on LinkedIn right now. Well, that's a good point, and you, you touch on, I think, an important theme, which is that um, there's a lot of admin involved in uh, going out on your own, whether you're a consultant or an expert witness. There, there's the billing, there's the record keeping, there's the, the tax, and there's the marketing, um, and, and organizing materials. Uh, just I, I find a, a lot of, of admin and of course, the, I don't know about you, the best laid plans, I can have a day mapped out in terms of working on certain cases. I get an, a lead on a new assignment, and I'm going to give that priority. And so with a clear conscience, I will ditch my, my best laid plans because you know I'm, I'm on a phone conference about a potential new case and gathering information and drafting an engagement letter and and you know, there are certain administrative steps at the beginning of each case in terms of billing and things of that nature. I don't know if that resonates with you. No, that, that's absolutely correct. I mean, I, I think that from, from my point of view uh, in, in, in our line of work, 
<clears throat> it's important uh, that that w that we maintain. Basically, you're marketing all the time. You never stop marketing, and even when you're in the midst of working on numerous cases, you still need to take some time to continue your marketing efforts. Because if you were to look at a graph and you do a lot of marketing efforts, typically that's going to result in more business. But if you stop your marketing efforts, the business tends to drop off. So you need to contain a consistent level of marketing activity. Do you find that certain types of marketing have more of an ROI return on investment for you than, than others? I mean, word of mouth versus placement in, say, this. I think you, you figure prominently in the seek directory, maybe some other directories, or um, ex being a speaker or exhibitor at DRI, do you, do you find, or social media, or cold calls, do, do you find any particular method of marketing has a better hit ratio or return on your investment of time and money? Well, that, that's a very good point, and I, and I try to keep track of it, but I, but I haven't done a, a real thorough job of that. But anecdotally, I can tell you that, uh, for example, the, the recent DRI conference, um, la last week we got two calls from, from people who were actually referred both to Eric and to me from lawyers that we met at the DRI conference. So, so these guys are actually both from uh, South Carolina. One lawyer calls the guy that we met and says, hey, uh, I'm looking for an insurance expert. He says, hey, I got two of them for you, Eric and Bob. Right. And bingo, there's, so there's two referrals from the meeting a guy that we'd worked for before at the DRI conference in New Orleans a couple of weeks ago. And my, my, my favorite story is um, last summer we were at an AAJ conference. Uh, yes. Uh, and, uh, which is the, uh, the plaintiff's bar in, right. in Denver. And um, we had a booth there, and, and it was quite a jammed uh, uh, setting. There were a lot of people there, a lot of vendors. And uh, three attorneys came up to me and said, we need to talk to you about a case. We sat down and talked for about 20 minutes, and one of the lawyers pulled a check out of his billfold and wrote me a deposit <laughs> on the spot. Talk about ROI. <laughs> so that was a pretty good and, – and it turned out to be a pretty good case. It, was, it went on for a couple of years. Actually, it was two wow. years ago. Yeah, so. Well, that's, that is – that is interesting. So you found that being an exhibitor at some of these, for lack of a better term, trade shows, professional trade shows Correct. Correct. Uh, in the legal industry has been a fact. If you, if you get one new case out of it, in my view is it's probably more than paid for your, oh, yeah. your investment in you know, b paying to be an exhibitor or, or some such. They, Let's they can be expensive. They can be expensive. Yeah. Right. But I think it's important that that you get your face out there, you meet the people, and hand out your business cards, uh, and just make the connection. Interesting, interesting. Let's step back a bit because you and I are both um, claims people, started out in the claims industry, um, have had some twists and turns in our careers that have developed areas of specialization. Looking at the claims area, though, a lot of people are worried about the brain drain 
in the claims industry with retirements and with, with layoffs and you know maybe artificial intelligence taking over a lot of the claims roles. What do you think insurance companies should be doing to combat the brain drain of talent and fill the pipeline with quality newcomers? Any thoughts on that? Well, you know, <clears throat> I, I'm not sure that I have the answers, but I do see some of the same symptoms that you mentioned. Uh, I think with, particularly with the, what I see and understand as the sort of computerization of claims um, so that there's, there's less human involvement in the decision-making process. Uh, it, it seems to me like, uh, for, for example, in the expert witness business, if you go to a AMCO or FIWA meeting, uh, you see nothing but a sea of gray hair. Uh, and right. and they're, they're, to me, uh, or no hair, or no hair, or no. <laughs> and so you, but you don't see a lot of uh, younger people coming up through the ranks. Uh, I think, like like you're used to. So I, I am I am somewhat concerned about the future of the insurance claims industry uh, because of that. Uh, I, and I don't know. I, I think that the industry needs to make more pathways for the employees so that they can uh, do different things in, in that environment. Um, and, I, I, and I guess also, once you go from claims adjuster or field adjuster to supervisor, you, you get to kind of a different level anyway. The supervisor part is, is more of a different skill set than claims adjusting per se. I think in, in the old days, they would take the best claims adjuster and make them the branch manager, and I don't think that was always the right thing to do. I don't think the best claims adjuster has always made the best branch managers. Well, that's a good point. Uh, typically, you're promoted as a claims person and in other realms for your technical skill. And what i found is that technical skill doesn't necessarily translate into the soft skills or people skills or management skills that are needed when you start working more with people and less with files, if that makes any sense. Yeah, and I, I think that's I think that's very true. I think that um, uh, I I just hope that the insurance industry keeps uh, enough of a interesting pathway for the claims folks to keep them industry and keep them in the industry. Yes, I agree with that. And I hope that there's a realization that when, when a cu customer or consumer has a loss, they don't want an app. I mean, everything seems to be the focused on tech, tech now. Go to our app. But really, when, when you've had a bad loss, you want a human being on the other side of that phone, not a recording, and not go to an app. Um, but that's just my own, my own bias. I'm not anti-tech at all. I'm an early adopter, but everybody seems fixated on having an app, and that's fine. There's a there's a role for that, but I think that you know you need high touch as much as high tech when when people have their house destroyed by fire or if they've been in a bad car accident. And I I, I think that's exactly correct. In fact, I just finished an opinion today on a, on a total loss on on a, on a residence. And, 
as it turns out, this was one of those deals where the the homeowner was solicited by way of a mailer from the bank. They never even talked to a human being when they signed up for the policy. Uh, the policy was an HO3 that had ACV coverage on the contents, the personal property, and quite frankly, the the homeowner or the policyholder had no idea what was going on. Uh, down the road a few years, they have a loss, and it cost them $60,000 in depreciation on the personal property coverage, and they were underinsured on the building. And these are things that could have very easily been avoided with a, a bit of human interaction and some analysis and understanding. Yeah, that's an ouch moment, and sometimes people learn that sometimes the quote is cheaper for a reason. That's correct. That is correct. They learn that reason after they have a loss. Um, Right. So if you had one piece of advice, I mean, we both started, I started in the claims business in the 1970s. Were were you in the 60s or 70s? Just um, late, late 60s, early 70s. Okay. I think I started in 69. Oh, there you go. And, and I was in 77. If you had one piece of advice for a person just starting out in the claims field, what would it be? Uh, my my uh, advice would learn everything you can about every aspect of it. Uh, there were there, When I first started, there were property adjusters and there were casualty adjusters. And they, they both kind of laughed at the other ones. The property guys would climb on rows, and the casualty guys would would uh, talk to attorneys about bodily injury. And, and my view of it was I wanted to do all of it. I wanted to do everything. And I think that that is the best training for, for a person getting into the business, is be an all-lines claims adjuster. You may settle on a particular area after some time. But I would want to try everything. The, the, the real senior people in the claims business, from my point of view, are the, what we used to call the general adjusters. At General Adjustment Bureau, the GAs or general adjusters were the old-time guys with the gray hair. They had the nice offices. They had better cars. And they were, they were handling really, really large, complex uh, uh, property damage claims to to buildings and structures. Uh, on the other hand, the <coughs> the advancement area for the casualty guys was was uh, I think a bit more limited. There were not a lot of casualty GAs, general adjusters in those days. So it sounds like the bit of advice is uh, become a generalist first before you think about specializing. Correct. Exactly. Yeah, I would want to learn a little bit about all the different areas to to find the the, the comfort zone. An impression I get from working on expert witness cases, and this this is not necessarily criticism, is that the trend is towards specialization. You've got people who are PIP adjusters or med pay adjusters or uh, collision uh, collision adjusters under ten thousand dollars. I mean, it's it's very segmented, very specialized these days, for good or ill. Well, and, and, you know, that, that may be a, some sort of a function of uh, insurance company 
design. Uh, and and let's let's face it, insurance companies are are like working for the U.S. government to a certain extent. They're big bureaucratic companies. Yeah. And and one of the things that, that I think happens is if you get the president of an insurance company and he reads the latest management book, they may make changes trying to figure things out on the fly. It's kind of like, okay, um, this, this month we're going, to, we're going to manage in a different style. Uh, I remember like at one point, uh, every Friday was casually, casual Friday. And then at one point, every day is a casual day. So there's, there's all different kinds of management styles and insurance companies are no different than any other large bureaucratic organization. They have management styles and they change. So it's, it's, that's part of, part of corporate life. You know, Bob, you just put your finger on one of the many things that I do not miss about working in a corporation, and that is when the boss goes to an off-site meeting and reads, reads the latest management book and comes back, you know, brimming with ideas. Uh, I worked for one back when In Search of Excellence by Tom Peters was a bestseller, and my, my branch manager became enamored by that. And he pronounced that, you know, the office was going to have cohesion. So we started having, like, after-hours volleyball uh, among the claim staff. But it was like, I want a corporate culture, and I want it by Monday morning. Or, uh, you know, some, some management by objectives or, uh, you know, blue water management. They, they would read some book. They would go to a retreat of other executives off-site and come back brimming with the latest flavor of the month management initiative to push down the throats of the rank and file. Um, That's true. You just hit a nerve, I guess. Anyway, (laughs) this is is not about me. It's about you. And we've learned a good bit about Bob Underdown, the professional. Let me close with some quick lightning round questions to get to know you better, Bob. Favorite food? Uh, Steak. Filet. Filet, okay. Filet mignon. All right. Nope. How do you like it done? Medium, well, Medium. well done? Medium. Medium. Okay. We may have touched on this, but I ask everyone this question. Finish this statement, Bob. If I didn't pursue a career in claims, I most likely would have been a? Uh, probably an attorney. Ah, okay. Any pangs of, did you, any wishes that you had done law school or? Well, I went to law school for a while, and then I got I got divorced, and I, I was unable to finish. Okay. But I mean, I would hate to take a cut in pay. <laughs> okay. All right. Um, my favorite thing to do for fun is um, fishing. Oh, okay. What do you what uh, fresh waters, uh, salt water? What what do you, what kind of fish do you normally go for or catch? Any kind of fishing. I like fishing off 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 the Gulf, uh, off the coast for tuna, and deep sea fishing, and also uh, fishing for bass in uh, inland lakes. Okay, okay. Somebody said that's why they call it fishing and not catching. But uh, that's that, right. I'm a, I'm a fisherman. <laughs> there you go. Favorite sports team? Um, the um, the Patriots. Ah. Okay, you're on that band. How does a guy from the Phoenix area become a Patriots fan? Uh, Tom Brady. Okay, 
Okay. Favorite book or movie? Favorite uh, movie one. is Blade, Blade Runner. No kidding. No yep. kidding. That's, what, that's maybe my favorite as well. Did you see the, the newer one, uh, Twenty Blade Runner 2049 or whatever with uh, – I forget who it was, but did you see the, the update? Yes, of it? I did. I did. And, and I actually have the original director's cut, uh, and I've, it's, uh, it's just a, a classic for me. I agree. There's so, many, there's so many iconic, great lines in that movie. I, I don't want to go off onto a tangent here, but the, in the, toward the closing scene, that Rutger Howard um, yes. character, yeah. uh, Batty, when he is about his soliloquy, just before yes. he dies, Fabulous. is, I think, one of the most electrifying movie scenes of all time. But again, I, 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 agree. I agree. I digress. Anyway, Bob, this has been great. If people want to contact you for follow-up, what's the best way to do that? Well, there, there are two simple ways. Um, my email is the easiest. It's bob at bobu.net, B-O-B at B-O-B-U, the letter U as in underdown, Bob at BobU.net. That's a simple email. Or my phone number, which is 480-216-1364. Okay. Well, Bob, thank you so much for your time today. And to the folks who are listening in, if you've liked the content here, please subscribe to the Claims Coach Podcast on iTunes and leave a review. And for more information on Quinley Risk Associates and my menu of services, please visit me on the web at www.kevinquinley.com or connect with me on Twitter. I'm at ClaimsCoach. That's one word, ClaimsCoach. Or connect with me through LinkedIn. So thanks to Bob Underdown, and thank you all for listening. And be sure to check back for future claims and risk management resources and podcasts from Quinley Risk Associates.